You made it. I'm so happy. It was 10 after 10, and there was like six of you in the room. And I'm thinking, I'm not really that exaggerating. I'm going, man, this is, this is crazy. But Dave Marshall said, Glenn, there are exactly the right number of people here for this time on a Sunday. This is normal. So, David, you were right. So I'm glad that you came. Um, you've, you bore the frozen tundra. It's actually really warm out there. I was quite surprised. As I was shoveling the pathway this morning, Sarah. Thank you very much. Along with my daughter, Amber, and Luke was doing the back. It was a good workout. Uh, we've got a lot to get through this morning, and so I'm going to be going quite quickly. Uh, I apologize. You, we do not have sermon notes to hand out. The photocopier broke, and so uh, that's, real, uh, that's frustrating, but they will be on uh, the website. Uh, if you go to missionlogs.com, that's the church blog, uh, missionlogs.com. Think of the mission and think of logs as in you writing a log. Think about Star Trek, mission logs, whatever to help you remember. Missionlogs.com forward slash PSC, post Sunday content. You will find information. You will find the Bible notes and links and maybe you know, some added content. You can go there too. And also if you go on version right now, version is working and you can find the event under Willow Park South on the Version Bible app, um, if that's what you normally do. Yes, we're going to send the children out right now. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, kids, you are dismissed. God bless you. It's a little bit of a, um, it's a, bit of a family meeting this morning. If this is your first time in the South, we do welcome you. And hope that you will enjoy your morning very much and uh, that you'll sense the presence of God. But this is, this is one of those times when you gather your family around the table and you say, okay, we just need to have a little chat. And, um, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So uh, for those of you that call South home, then you will know that the content and this topic of this message is not one that I, I uh, speak on regularly. In fact, the last time I spoke on this topic was 2011, uh, a very similar time of year. So... Um, We'll, we'll get into it, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Before we get there, there's this really intriguing story in Luke chapter 4 of Jesus in the temple, and he reads out some scripture, and as soon as he reads it, he's talking about the fulfillment of the Messiah coming, and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst today, and the Pharisees and the scribes all nod and, and murmur and just wonder. You can read it later, and they say, wow, this is, this is a very impressive young man, and, and, and then Jesus He's not quite finished. He carries on talking and he tells them some of the history of Israel. And he refers back to the Old Testament. He's basically quoting Old Testament to them. And then they go nuts. They go they're furious with him because what he's doing is he's, he's turned what is a nice, loving, and wonderful, oh, isn't that nice, scripture. And all he's doing is he's taking another scripture... And sharing it with them, another account of history and sharing it with them. But they don't like that. They like one set, but they don't like the other. In fact, they want to kill him. So bear that in mind when I'm speaking to you this morning. Because what I'm actually going to do is I'm just going to be sharing what the Bible says about something. And so don't, well, you can criticize the messenger. That's, that's okay. But all I'm going to be doing is sharing with you what the Bible says. So here's the challenge we have with the Bible. 
I'm going to be honest with you. We have have no problem in agreeing with a lot of what God says. Our challenge is when it comes to believing it and living it out. And so what we do is we look at a scripture and we either can accept what it says immediately if it seems to be something we can apply and even better agree with, but we struggle when it seems to be contrary to our experience or our philosophy or, or our preference. We go, well, it can't mean that because that doesn't just make me feel good. And that's a challenge because the Bible is filled with challenging scriptures that actually don't make me feel good. And they, 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 they shake me. But the reality is, is this teaching this morning, perhaps more than any other topic that I can choose, points us to him and causes us to press into him. It frees us to care. It produces an expectancy in our lives. It creates a sense of adventure. It's actually Christianity making a practical difference on a day-to-day level. It's just in an area or a topic that, like those Pharisees and scribes in the temple, they just makes us feel uncomfortable. And so we said when we, when we started leading in the South, and four years ago, almost to the weekend, We said that we wanted to be faithful to the scripture and preach what the Bible says, even if that makes us uncomfortable, which, by the way, is why we tend to go through series, because it keeps me on track. So rather than me just choosing scriptures that I think, well, they'll like me after this one, which is a temptation for any person, I'm actually confined and constrained by the scripture, even if it makes me feel uncomfortable. But I promise you, this will make a difference in your life. In fact, this topic is one of the main conversation pieces out in the world. You can breathe easy. We talked about sex a few months ago. It's not sex. Okay? But it is perhaps the most talked about topic in our culture. And it's completely... No, you know what? I'm going to pull back. It's not completely avoided. It's avoided generally in church because we don't like to talk about it in church because we shouldn't be talking about that sort of thing in church. Okay, in the coffee shops, but not in church. Whereas when I read what Jesus did and what he said, I find that 25% of what he taught seems to refer to this topic. We have a poor track record in Christendom on this topic. What I'm going to be talking to you about this morning, now that I've really drawn you in, you're like, what is he talking about? I'm going to be talking about money. So something happened inside of you right there. Oh, gosh. I wonder, is that a baby crying? I don't even have a baby. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure. If that number appears, I don't know if you noticed, but earlier on in the service, it said, God is goo. (laughs) Did you see that? Was that just me? I did take an Advil before I came out this morning. Was that? Did anyone else see God is goo on there? Oh, good. Pete did. So it's just you and me, Pete. But if the number appears on there and you leave, and I know you haven't got a baby, then I know it's because of this topic. No pressure. You can hold in the bladder for the next half an hour or so. I'm going to talk about money. We have a poor track record in Christendom when it comes to money. I am ashamed to say that there are people who call themselves Christians who go on TV and write books and preach teaching that, that really is not in line with Scripture, that gives church a bad rep. Because if you've been here long enough, you will know that this is not something that I pound every week. 
In fact, the last time I preached on money is 2011. It's very, very close to our heart, and we get very, very protective and very judgmental. So as soon as church and money are connected, we go, ah, there's an agenda. Well, maybe that straight away, just want to be honest, is more reflective of your issues, not ours as a church. Because if you've been in Willow Park Church long enough, you know that money is not high on the agenda in terms of constantly reminding you and constantly telling you. But the reason that I want to preach to you about money this morning is, I'll be honest, yes, giving needs to increase. However, obedience to the Bible is more important to me. And so when we come to obedience to God and obedience to Christ, you cannot avoid the issue of generosity. You can't. It's actually freeing. So I'm going to be very quick. I'm going to keep to my notes because I need to get through a lot of information. But here's here's what I want to encourage you to do. If, If you're serious about being obedient to God and actually want to see freedom come in your life, not in the prosperity gospel kind of way that for every dollar you put into that plate, you're going to get $100 back. I'm not saying that, but if you want to see genuine freedom, then you need to listen and lean into this teaching and maybe listen to it again when it goes online. So let me just give you some overriding principles that in and of themselves I could spend a long time preaching, but so I'm just going to kind of give you a a Bible uh, grenade over the next minute or two. Um, The first thing I want you to know is, first of all, underlying everything is that everything belongs to God. Everything you own, everything you wear, Brad, everything that you drive, every ha- the houses you live in, the money that you earn is God's, not yours. Exodus 19 verse 5, all the earth is mine. Job 41 verse 11, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, not mine, his, mine. Haggai 2 verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Psalm 50 verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And listen to this, this is a beautiful scripture, Deuteronomy 8 verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In other words, I worked hard for this. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God. Listen, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So you have the ability from God to go and earn money, and the money belongs to him. Everything is God's. And living in the present reality of this teaching, friends, actually brings great freedom because he can give and he can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so he can give you abundance. He can give you good things. He can give you the money. He can give you the power to earn. And then when those things may stop, God is still good. He is still in control because everything belongs to him. And you see, that is freeing because what we can do is take our eyes off what we think we control and actually put our eyes on him and towards the hills and towards he that owns everything and say, God, you know my predicament. You know the issues that I'm in. Everything belongs to you. This is your deal, not mine. It's freeing. So now I don't have to control. I can let go. Even when it seems that he allows us to go to the very edge of the edge of the edge of the precipice of the edge when it comes to God I need you to come through he'll let us do that it all belongs to God the Bible says there's an underlying principle in the Bible I like this it's also for you to enjoy he says go enjoy this 
Enjoy the good things that I allow you to have. Enjoy them. I want you to enjoy them. Why? Because it brings him glory and us joy. And it's a good thing. He's not this capricious God who's holding everything like, you know, with a snarl on his face. He wants us to enjoy the good things he's given to us. It's also, very importantly, ours to give away. So steward it. Give. An underlying principle in the New Testament that Jesus refers to, secondly, is how we use our money is an indicator of our spiritual condition. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is an indicator of our spiritual condition? Is it how we help the poor? No. Is it how we go to church on a regular basis? No. Is it how we read our Bibles or pray or support the good ventures that are going on in our community? No, no, no. Jesus here is saying, where your treasure is, is where your heart. If you really want to know if somebody's living differently, look at their checkbook. Look at how they treat money. Because friends, grace and coming into relationship with Jesus will lead us to live our lives differently. What is the target of our affection? If it is God and Jesus and all that he did, then we hold our life with an open hand because in comparison is nothing compared to who he is and what he has done and what he has given. You only need to look at Acts chapter 2 to see the effect that grace has on a group of people where they are living every day with open hand, constantly giving, receiving, and giving, and giving. And and all those that had need were, were given. It's a beautiful picture of what Christianity should be like. But Glenn, what if he doesn't provide? What if he doesn't come through? The first thing I would ask, and I would ask this over coffee, and and, and I'd say it lovingly, is what is it you're asking for, and is it in line with what God's best is for you? Because God's best for you is exactly what you have right now. His plan for you, if we believe that God is the author and the finisher, the alpha and the omega, and in control of everything, then he is actually in control of everything. And so every aspect of our life at any moment in time is part of his plan for us. And even if it is painful, then that still somehow has to contribute to our good and his glory in the end. So what is it we're asking for that we're wanting him to provide? Will it truly be the best thing for us? But that question also may not be a financial question as much as it is a spiritual question. It's a question of trust as opposed to a control. What if he doesn't provide? So this sermon really is a sermon about the heart. And so some of the questions that you may be asking yourselves, and they should appear, and Jason, you're doing a wonderful job. I'm keeping you busy today on the tech back there. The first question that you probably will be asking is, should I give out of my present circumstances? And where I find myself now, should I be giving? Secondly, how much should I give? And thirdly, to whom should I give it? Because you might be thinking, Glenn, I can't afford it. I'm, I'm in debt. Should I give 10%? My spouse isn't a Christian, so how do I give from that? Uh, I don't want to give to the church. These are all real questions. 
And so we need to address them in a biblical way, not in an experiential or preferential way. Does that? No, not preferential. In, a, in my preference. So we need to separate what I would prefer, which is ABC, because this is what I'm comfortable with and happy with as a pastor and as a, as a husband and a, and a dad. And I need to look at what the Bible says, and then I need to remind myself that sometimes the Bible says something that's contrary to my preference, and I need to lean into that and consider it. So that's where I want us to be this morning. Okay, let's go. That was my introduction. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through to 8. Let's read. This passage encompasses everything we need to know about giving. Second Corinthians 8, verse 1 through to 8. This is Paul talking to the possibly the most messed up church in history. Like they were all over the shop. Their issues, there's just no way that you would be able to get a pastor to come to that place unless they felt specifically called from God. Because these people had major challenges. And so he's, he's talking to the Corinthians and he's using a Macedonian church as an example to them. That's the context. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. But out of the the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their, notice those words, extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. And they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. They were begging Paul to give. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Verse 9, for they know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you may through his poverty might become rich. Point one is generosity begins with gratitude. In verse 9, I'll read it to you. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet became for your sakes, he became poor, so that you might through his poverty might become rich. In verse 2, it says, Out of the most, um, sorry, in verse 1, it says, Now, brothers, you want, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So the Macedonian church was generous because they recognized and felt the grace of God in their life. They weren't generous because they were rich. They were actually, we see, they were in extreme, quote, extreme poverty. See, Christian giving is always a response to grace. So you want to know what the motivation is for giving? Is it that I show you a whole list of numbers and go, you know what, if we don't meet this number, we're going to struggle? No, no, that's not the motivation. Is the motivation, okay, if you give, then you're just going to have joy and love and peace and you're just going to have freedom. And No, that's not the motivation either because what that's actually doing is playing into our culture's mindset of saying, look, if, if you give, you'll get something in, rece- in return. Therefore, please give. And so we think, oh, right, well, if I'm going to get something, I'll give. If I'm not going to get anything, I won't give. No, it's 
It does away with that thinking as well. The pure motivation for giving generously was that they had received grace. Full stop. End of sentence. End of paragraph. That's it. They had received grace. That they had been so impacted by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they looked at themselves and they said, how can we not give? They pleaded, let us share, let us give from our extreme poverty to what you're doing because we are so in awe of how Jesus gave to us. We give because it has been given to you. Jesus Christ coming to earth, living in extreme poverty, going to the cross, giving his life for us so that we could receive righteousness, right standing before God. So God and us could once again be connected in relationship so we could spend eternity starting here and now in heaven because of all these good things that have already been given. They were tripping over themselves to give back to the ministry that meant that other people would also be able to receive from that. They weren't going, well, well I need some control here. They were saying, just show us where we can give. We want to give. It's beautiful. What a wonderful open heart. You see, Jesus died and paid our debt of sin. Jesus is generous. Jesus is gracious. Jesus is a giver. He's an example to us all in saying, look, as I have given, you go and give also. There is no, please hear this. If you forget everything else in the sermon Let this be one of the things you remember. There's no bait and switch here. I'm not trying to manipulate or transform or use neuro-linguistic programming on you. There's no subliminal hypnotic messages going on behind me. Maybe in the trees a little bit, but there's nothing. I'm not leading to the, so therefore, I'm not guilting you into. I'm not interested in that. I want to show you that if as Christians we truly lived in the present reality of the gospel, we wouldn't be saying how much should we give. We would be saying how much do we get to keep? How can I give? See, generosity starts and begins with gratitude. Number two, generosity is about sacrifice. So let's just quickly talk about tithing. Because we want to know how much we should give. So let me just say categorically, this is some very important 50,000 foot teaching, which I want you to remember and go away and look at. When we talk about tithing in the church, for those of you who are new in the church, tithing means a tenth. And so traditionally we've said we would like you to tithe to the church. In other words, give 10% of your total income to the church. Beautiful, wonderful. Please do. The reality is, though, if we're going to bind ourselves to tithing, we need to know what tithing actually is. And in the Old Testament, there weren't just one tithe. There was three tithes, equaling 30% of their income. So listen to it. There was 10% that went to the work of the temple, the church. 10%, I love this, went to parties. I'll say it again. 10% of our total income would go to the party fund. And then once a year, and sometimes more, they would just kick off the biggest feast 
that they had all contributed to 10% of their income. Let's just imagine if we took 10% of everybody's income in here right now and put it into a party fund. I'm going to go to that party. There's going to be a few more than little party poppers and a few balloons and a couple of sausage rolls. That's going to be the party of parties. Just saying. Maybe we should make that part of the thing, John. Brad, what do you think? Yeah, thumbs up. The, se- the third tenth every year, every three years, went specifically to the poor. So they gave 30% of their income. And that was before all the other sacrifices and givings as, as were dictated to in their, in their law at the time. They were giving massive amounts away. So we move into the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about tithing? In other words, our model for church... How does that relate to tithing? And so I have three elders, potentially, in, from Willow Park as a whole, in the congregation. And so I want to be very clear as to what the Bible says about what the tithing issue is. Let me be very clear. The teaching on tithing in the New Testament is not explicit. It's not really implicit. It's not hardly mentioned, to be honest. It's kind of referred to in a negative way by Jesus because it was used by the Pharisees and Sadducees to show off. So tithing is not actually taught in the New Testament. I have to be honest with you. What the New Testament actually teaches is this. Not how much you give, but how much you keep. The teaching in the New Testament is this. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2 to 4. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, for they testified they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. I'm going to say a statement and I'm going to come back to it. Tithing's too easy. Tithing is minimum. These people gave as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. In Mark chapter 12, we see this story of Jesus watching people putting their money into the offering. And, and, it, and it says in Mark 12, they all gave out of their wealth, but she, the widow, out of her poverty, put in everything. All that she had, she gave in one tiny little coin called a mite. Most of those people wouldn't even bend down and pick one of those up. She gave everything she could out of her extreme poverty, beyond what she was able. And Jesus says, out of their wealth they gave, not impressed. Maybe it was more than 10%, maybe it was 20%, maybe it was 30 40%. Not impressed. What he's impressed with is the sacrificial giving generously from that lady. So there's no sacrifice versus grace-filled sacrifice. God is not impressed by our amounts nor our bookkeeping. What I drive is not going to help whether or not I get into heaven. I drive a van filled with fishy crackers. It's not, it's not going to help. God's not like, wow, nice van. He's not impressed with amounts. He's impressed with the heart. A.W. Tozer said this, and I quote, I am obliged to tell you that God does not need anything you have. He does not need a dime of your money. It is your own spiritual welfare that is at stake in such matters as these. 
You have the right to keep what you have all to yourself. But it will rust and decay and ultimately ruin you. See, God gives us money and then he says, live generously over and above. Out of their most severe trial, they gave with overflowing joy. So generosity is not so much about, okay, how much should we give? It's more about how are we generously over and above, beyond our ability, giving. See, the New Testament teaches that your giving from money which actually isn't ours should be, first of all, given regularly. It teaches that it should be given cheerfully, and it teaches that it should be given sacrificially. Regularly, cheerfully, sacrificially. That's what the New Testament teaches. And can I say, and I say this with with love and respect to what has been taught previously, 10% is not a sacrifice for some of you. Some of us drop 10% On clubs and leisure and activities and holidays and everything else, not a problem. 10% is not necessarily a sacrifice. For some, 10% is just, I. that's beyond, beyond, beyond. And so what the New Testament teaches is, okay, it's not so much about the 10%, it's about whether or not you are giving sacrificially. Does it pinch? Does it make you go, I don't know whether we can afford this. But God, we're going to give it because it's not ours, it's yours. So therefore, we have an answer to a whole load of questions. Should I give 10%? Yes, that's a great principle to work from. If it's sacrificial to you, if it, 10% is just nowhere near where you can get to, identify what is going to pinch and give that. Because it appears to me that that's what the New Testament teaches. So for some, that might be 60%. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? Should it be gross or net? Irrelevant question. Gross may not pinch enough. It's about the sacrifice. Non-Christian spouse. So how do I give to the church when 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 my spouse is not a Christian? Any surplus money that you might own, give from that sacrificially. Yeah, well, it's okay for the rich. <laughs> you know, statistically, most, uh, the more money someone has, the less they actually give. Statistically. It's kind of interesting. See, sacrifice isn't easier the richer you get. There's a story, and I'll read it to you. A man once came to Peter Marshall, the former chaplain of the United States Senate, with a concern about tithing. He says, I have a problem. I've been tithing for some time. It wasn't too bad when I was making $20,000 a year. I, I was able to give up 2000 But now that I am making $500,000 a year, there's no way I can afford to give away 50000 a year. So Peter Marshall, the chaplain, reflected on this wealthy man's dilemma and gave no advice. And he said, yes, sir, I, I see you have a problem. I think we ought to pray about it. Is that all right? So the man agreed. So Dr. Marshall bowed his head and prayed, dear Lord. This man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Please reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. Amen. (laughs) So the more money you have doesn't make tithing any easier. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you who are making more money now than you were maybe when you were at university and you were tithing regularly there, 
It's not any easier now. So how much should you give? 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 10% is a great place to start, but thus saith the Lord, figure it out. (laughs) You want to know what amount you should give? Figure it out. Go before Jesus and pray and consider a number. If it causes you to rely on God for your needs, you'll get in there. If it's causing you to remind yourself that he is in control and not you, you're there. If it points us to him and not to our own ability or circumstances, you're there. And when we're there, we suddenly realize that our ego and our security is released. It frees us to care for other people more than ourselves. It produces an expectancy like, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. But I get a sense that you will. Because if you don't, get pretty bad around here. You give anyway. It creates this sense of adventure. And I want this to appear if you can find it, Jason. We make a difference as we are obedient. That's worth living and giving for. We make a difference in the lives of people around us as we give. C.S. Lewis said this, and I think this might appear behind me. I need to take some coffee. Just warm up my throat a little bit. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to not well, there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. I'm going to read you this illustration. This is not my normal way of doing things, but I, I want to read it to you because I want to get it right. And it's an illustration of John Wesley, one of the greatest evangelists of the 18th century. He was born in 1703, and in 1731, he began to limit, please listen to this, he began to limit his expenses so that he, could, he would have more money to give to the poor. In his first year, his income was 30 pounds. It's probably equivalent to about $50. And he found he could live on 28, so he gave away two. In his second year, his income doubled. But he held his expenses even, and so he had 32 pounds to give away, a comfortable year's income in itself. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62 pounds. So that's two years' salary he gave away in one year. Think about your salary, double it, that's what he gave away, and stayed living on that same amount in the first year. So in the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. He gave away 62 pounds. In his long life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds in a year. That's mind-blowing. But he he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at a time. This so baffled the English tax commissioners that they investigated him in 1776, insisting that for a man of his income, he must have silver dishes that he was not paying excise tax on. He wrote to them, quote, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. 
This is all the plates I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many round me want bread. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in his will was the coins to be found in his pocket and his dresser. Most of the 30,000 pounds, bearing in mind an average wage was 30 pounds a year, most of his 30,000 pounds he had earned in his life had been given away. He wrote, I cannot help leaving my books behind me where, uh, whenever God calls me hence, but in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. My own hands will give away my money. So we've answered two of our starting questions. Should I give from my present circumstance? Yes. How much should I give? Yes, sacrificially. Maybe I should have just stood up and said that right at the beginning, save us a whole load of time. So where? Where should we direct our generosity? So here's where we can, if we're not careful, we can kick into control again rather than stewardship. Number three, God's unique plan. I want to encourage you to consider, firstly, to give to this church for reasons I will share in a second. But biblically, I know some of you may be feeling a little bit like this when I say you should give to the church. We got a photograph. I saw this this week. I thought this was a good example of, have we got that, Jason? So when I say you should give to the church, maybe you're feeling a little bit like that guy at the front there going, are you kidding me? Whereas there might be people in the room that go, okay, I'm okay with that. This is great. I'm okay with that. That's all right. There's all these going, no. See, the Bible in the New Testament is quite, um, it's, it doesn't teach, I've got to be straight with you again, biblically. There is no explicit teaching in the New Testament about giving all your gifts to the church. There isn't. It's implicitly taught in the following way. In Malachi, we're told that God wants us to direct our offering into the temple. It was for four functions, and they're going to appear behind me. The four functions were this for the temple. Number one, the Hebrews, so they could give money. The pastors, the prophets, the priests could determine that these following four things, that they should give money to the Hebrew widows and orphans living within the city. That the widows and orphans of the Gentiles who were living in and around the Hebrew city, that's missions. The tribe of Levi and the priests of Aaron, so that's the people working in the temple. Also got some of the money. And then the prophets. See, in 1 Corinthians 9, I haven't got time to take you there. Paul endorses the temple system. And scholars agree that the church has taken over from the temple system. The New Testament church, what we have here is is the, the same temple system, but without the sacrifices because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. So if we associate the functions of the Old Testament and apply them to the church in the New Testament, what we have is a fourfold function that God says give to the church so that four things can happen. First of all, we've got these as well. That widows, orphans, single parents, and invalids can be looked after in the local church. That the unsaved around, that surround the local church can hear the gospel and and be looked after. That thirdly, the pastor and the staff can actually get an income. And then fourthly, missionaries and evangelists going wider can also be given to. And so what you actually have there is a picture of what Willow Park is doing. And if you want to ask questions about how that works, then Brad or John or Chris would be happy, I'm sure, to talk to you more about the intricacies of that. By the way, I don't know anybody, I don't know who gives in this church. I don't want to know. 
I've got no clue who or what amount gives to this church. I know what the overall giving is, but I don't know who. I need you to know that because that's an important boundary that I've placed in my life that I just don't want to know. But what we can tell you is where the areas of our church, where we're actually in line with what God implicitly teaches in the New Testament, we should be supporting. But there is no scripture that says, thou shalt give all your giving to the local church. There's not. But there is teaching that certainly suggests and and, and implicitly teaches that we should be directing some giving to the local church. And if we're honest, we have no problem giving money to the poor. Hear me lovingly. We have no problem giving money to the poor. It's the pastors we have issue with. I've had people in church tell me, I pay your wages. That's happened in the last 20 years. And I go, no, you don't. God does. Because there's a mentality that somehow we shouldn't give to the church because we're just not sure whether or not it is going to the right places. Lovingly, let me say this in front of the elders as well. If you're feeling that way about this church, you need to find another church. You need to find a place where you do believe that the money is going towards sharing the gospel. I'd encourage you to do that. But I have worked for 24 years in churches. Only in the last four years have I actually drawn a salary from a church. 20 years I I worked bivocationally. I I worked as a teacher, as a consultant, did various things to support myself as I pastored. But I can honestly say I have never been in a church like Willow Park when it comes to finances. Our church runs things so lean. And what I mean by that is we don't employ people just to get a job done. We have three full-time pastors and one part-time pastor looking after a congregation of around about 1,300, 1,400 people. Anybody will tell you that when you get to a point where there's around about 70 people, and in the south we have between 250 and 300 people. I know you don't think it looking around, but there's always a third away. I've already preached on that. They will say when you get to 70, that's as much as one person can actually deal with pastorally. We run lean. And what that means is, is there's some things we just say no to. Because you can look at the way that the money is given to local missions. You can look at the way that money is given to single mums and orphans and widows. You can look at the way that money is given to missions all around the world. You can look at, at, at the way that the church stewards the money that you give. And if you are not confident in that, then I please encourage you to go to a place where you are confident of that. Because we are all about the gospel. You see, Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians and Philippians and 1 Timothy that pastors and staff should be able to be supported by the local church. And then the other factors of the local church, the church is God's unique plan for sharing the gospel. And we should acknowledge this by giving there. Why do we struggle with that? Maybe for biblical reasons, you'd be hard pushed to find biblical reasons. Is it to maintain control? Is it because you've had a bad experience in the past? 
I don't know. But I would encourage you to come to the Lord and pray about it. Because God's unique plan for spreading the gospel, the only hope that this city has is this church, the church of Kelowna. Whether it's Willow Park Church or Trinity or any other church you might want to go to, it's the church. That's his unique plan. And I would encourage you to pray. If this is your family, if South is your family, if Willow Park is your church family, then please give to the work here. Because we are providing to you for free. And we're not banging on about this every week. But we need your help. So Glenn, are you saying that I should only give to the church? No, I didn't say that. I'm saying please give to the church. And then have fun. Find other things. Give. Live generously. Live in a way that God would call you to live with your money, with an open hand upon it, looking for ways that you can bless others. I'm just asking you to pray and go before the Lord biblically and consider whether or not you should be increasing your giving to the church or starting your giving to the church. Because this church works hard to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are behind where we were last year. whether it be local or national, international missions, whether it be children's work, whether it be youth work, young adults work, Sundays, whether it be paying the pastors who are visiting and caring and and honestly squelching through stuff that we wouldn't want and wish upon anybody. I don't rely upon you for my salary. I rely upon God. But I have no qualms in standing in front of you saying, please give to this church because I know that this church is spreading the gospel. If you took the total amount of giving that we at the South give each year and divide it between everybody who regularly comes, i.e. the amount of money on average that each person and each adult is giving to the South, then you come up with around about $100 a month, $1,200 a year on average. What's actually happening is 20% of the people, I'm going to guess, is giving 80% of the money. I'm going to guess. I don't know. Because the reason I think that, and we've done a little bit of working out, is it means that the, if everybody is giving sacrificially, and if everybody was giving a tenth, it means that the annual income, the average annual income of somebody in the South is between twelve dollars and $18,000 a year. And I'm guessing that's not the case. I don't like preaching this. But I just feel like I need to press it a little bit. Not for the sake of the church, but for the sake of your heart. So that we can live generously. Now you may be giving a lot more over and above to other things. And I praise God for that. But throw in a prayer for the church there as to what that might look like. So we can make a difference as we're obedient. That's worth living and giving for. It's a reflection of our heart. And it's an expression of our worship. So let me just predict in closing what some of the things you may have heard that I didn't say. (laughs) I didn't say that you must give 10% of your income to the church first. That's it. I didn't say that. I said if 10% pinches, go for it. If it doesn't, you should be giving more. If 10% is just way beyond, identify an amount that does pinch and give that. 
I did say, please consider and pray what God is calling you to give to this work of Jesus Christ in this corner of the city. And I did say that as we live generously, I think we'll find that God, in his already shown generosity called grace in Jesus Christ, will throw us into the middle of an adventure that will actually give us freedom and joy. We don't give to get that. We give because we've been given the opportunity to live. That's what I said. So I could have just said all that right at the beginning and saved us a lot of time. But I really do want you to think and consider about what God is saying to you in 2015 about giving. I know that there are many people in this church who are giving sacrificially. How do I know that? Because it's strange. There seems to be a mark upon people who live like that. There's a, I don't know, there's just a a sense of freedom around people. I know people are giving sacrificially. And I know that people have historically given sacrificially to this church. We are sat in the the outworkings of that sacrifice, this building. I want us to be a church that lives generously. Have fun with it. Sacrificially. Believing that God will always meet our needs. Let's pray. We will be taking our offering in a minute, maybe when the second song of this set starts. And, and I wanted to do it now because I wanted us to put it as part of our worship this morning. Give you time to think and consider just as you have your eyes closed. And you can set up pre-authorized payments and all sorts of stuff. We can give you information about that. But right now, I want you to pray and consider your heart condition what it is that you're worshipping what it is that you are putting first whether you are standing in obedience before God when it comes to your income and your your view of it I want you to as we're worshipping I want you to think and pray that through and then as the bag comes round I'm praying that you will be in a position where you can give generously, maybe for the first time in a long time. So we can obediently live out this life that God has given to us. Dear Jesus, I I pray as we move into this time of worship that our focus would be not on money but on on you, Jesus, on your gift to us, on what you give us every day to enjoy, and and that, Lord, that you you would speak to us clearly about how we can give back to our city and our community and our church from that. Thank you, Lord, for the work that is going on in this place. Lord, I thank you for those in this church that regularly, sacrificially give, not just to the South, 
but to those who are needy in our city. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, for those that are just giving what they can. Even if it might seem like a small amount, Lord, I thank you that you gain great pleasure when you see your people following the teaching of your word.